Unfortunately, due to some technical issues, the beginning of this sermon didn't get recorded. Uh, the sermon began uh, with this question, uh, you know you're loved when what? Uh, having spent uh, a few moments considering some of the definitions that we find in our culture, uh, we moved on to then consider uh, how we get some insight into the greatness of God's love from this passage. There are three marks of God's love uh, that we are considering. That's love's cost, love's choice and love's clarity. Uh, we pick up a few minutes into this sermon looking at the theme of love's cost uh, as we consider this cup uh, that Jesus prays uh, might pass him if possible. Uh, what that cup means and what it reveals of love's cost. I'm not entirely sure what it means. The best place to go, the first place to go, is the rest of the Bible. And there's online concordances uh, and search engines that you can use that will help you with that. But the writers of the New Testament, they were steeped in the Old Testament. They had the imagery, they had the stories, they had the narrative. All that was going through their mind. That, that was the, the, the life that they lived. These were the stories that they knew. And we've seen it in Matthew's Gospel, this theme of fulfillment that's been going through. Looking back at the Old Testament, how this is coming to fulfillment. So the first place to go, the best place to go, look at the rest of Scripture. What does that say? And if you type in cup into some sort of concordant search engine, you're going to come up with a number of verses. Some of them just speak about cups in general. But one's about metaphoric cups that cause pain and distress. One of the passages that you will come across is Jeremiah 25. There's a number of others in books like Isaiah. But Jeremiah 25. And you've got this cup, Jeremiah 25, 15. And this cup is described as being the cup of God's wrath. And again, it's worth just stopping for a moment and defining what we mean by that, because often we, we see wrath in very ugly terms. I mean, from a human point of view, when we speak of wrath, wrath is often this disproportionate reaction to a situation. Now, someone explodes in a situation. They're being wrathful. And often it's about making ourselves feel better. Someone's pressed my buttons, it's building up inside me, and I just let it out and I explode. But that's not what God's wrath is like. God's wrath is not about making himself feel better. The wrath of God is about making everything else better. The wrath of God is about his work of rescue and redemption for his creation as he brings into judgment all that is opposed to his goodness. And so human wrath, we see it as ugly. The wrath of God, it is pure. It is good. The problem... The problem is that we, by nature, we're told, are those objects of wrath. Because by nature, we oppose God's goodness. By nature, we oppose God's goodness and we align ourselves with evil. And that evil is so imbibed within us that we don't even recognize it as evil most of the time. We, we look at it and we point at those great evils that are out there in the world. And yet we become blind to the evil within our own lives. We don't view it as evil. I'm just exercising my free will. Exercising my human rights. So we become blind to evil and scripture describes us as these objects of wrath. And so if God is to do away with evil, that question that's often posed, if God is good, if God is all powerful, why doesn't he just do away with evil? If God is to just sweep it away in one fell swoop, then we get swept away with it. 
that Jesus came, as we read at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 1.21. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And he's going to do so by becoming the sin sacrifice. By becoming the one who bears, who takes our sins on himself and then so drinks the cup of God's wrath. And this is a cup that we're told in Jeremiah 25. There's a cup of horror. It is a cup that causes staggering, that causes falling, that causes disorientation, that even the mighty fall under its weight. Now, when I was uh, younger, we used to go on family holidays to Cornwall. And we would often go out into the sea and we would do some bodyboarding. Now, bodyboarding, if you don't know, it's like a less cool, less skilled version of surfing. You don't need any balance. You just need to fling yourself uh, on this board. So I'm out in the sea, a beautiful blue sky overhead. There's some good waves that are coming in, and I'm there on the bodyboard. Uh, and there's a wave coming in, and I leap on it, and there I'm zooming into shore, looking nice and cool as a nine-year-old or whatever I was. Now, I'm a pretty good swimmer. This is a good, safe beach between the flags, because, you know, I follow the rules. Uh, And as I come to the shore and I stand up to get out and head back out, suddenly this wave comes from behind me, breaks over the top of my head, and I'm down. I'm flattened. So there's blue sky ahead of me one second, and now it's just water completely enveloped in the sea. I'm spinning over. I can't figure out which way is up. The wind has been knocked out of me. I'm desperate to try and breathe. This is a moment of horror and panic. And then all of a sudden, sea recedes. Stand up again, probably about knee deep. And the whole thing lasted seconds. And yet in that moment, it was this experience of horror, of disorientation, of stumbling, of just being pummeled down. And this was a few seconds on a British beach by one wave. And so just imagine the force of a tsunami that can wipe out you know, parts of a city. And then increase that in your mind and imagine the force and the power to wipe out a whole nation, a wicked nation, an evil dynasty. And that's the image you get in Jeremiah 25 of the cup of God's wrath. But then increase that image and think of the force and the power to wipe away, to wash away all evil, all wickedness, every evil thought, every evil deed across the whole earth throughout human history. What must the force of that be like? And then imagine that force and that power being directed at one period of time against one specific individual who is going to drink the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. And the wrath of God is directed against sin and wickedness. But Jesus is about to become the sin bearer, the one who's going to bear the sins of many. And so the force of God's holy wrath against evil and against wickedness is going to fall completely on Jesus. And it is going to crush him. And that is what it costs Jesus To bear the sins of his people. To rescue his people from their sins. That is what it cost for him to rescue you. That is the cost 
he paid. Do you know how much you are loved? Yet, of course, we know people can, can do costly things, but not out of choice. Perhaps the situation has been forced or they continue out of this sense of duty. They've been backed into a corner, but that is not so with God. We considered last week, you know, the cross, it isn't a plan B. This isn't a things were going in a certain way and all of a sudden this unforeseen circumstance came about and, oh, no, I've got to change it to, to try and get things back on track. This is God's choice. God is in control of the situation. See, the love of God is marked by its cost, but also by its choice. This is love's choice. And as Jesus there considers the horror of what lies ahead, he prays to his father, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He submits himself to the Father's will. And these verses here should dispel any notion that we have that Jesus is the one who is gentle and lowly and intimate and close, but the Father, he's distant and he is cold. Jesus submits himself to the Father's will. What is the will of the Father? The will of the Father is that Jesus goes to the cross. See, this is the Father's will. Jesus does not go to the cross to convince the Father of something. Jesus does not go to the cross so that the Father can love us. Because of the Father's love, Jesus goes to the cross. And it's a small, subtle difference, but it makes the world of difference. See, the cross is not about God opening up a way so that he can love us. If anything, it's more about God opening up a way so that we can love him. So that we can be brought near to him, so that we can experience the love of the Father. And there's this unfathomable cost that we see in this redemption. And it's a cost that God willingly meets within himself. One that pierces, one that that breaks right at the heart of the Trinity. As Jesus cries out, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, it's not because it's this attractive proposition for him. It's not because it's this easy route. It's one that causes anguish and pain. He goes to the cross because he is fully submitted to the Father's will. He is fully submitted, committed to the Father's plan of rescue and redemption. So this isn't an accident. This is a costly choice. It is a divine, costly choice. This is God's willful work of redemption. And so after this time of agonizing in prayer, we see in verse 46, Jesus says to his disciples, the time's here now. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It's not a a call of let us flee, let us run away, but I'm walking forwards into this purpose. I'm committed to the Father's purpose of redemption. What we read of next in these following verses, verse 47, in many ways could be somewhat humorous if it wasn't horrific. See, this mob arrive 
Uh, they come with Judas, who's leading this group. Uh, they're armed, they're ready, and their plan is to take Jesus by surprise. And so Judas has arranged uh, the signal. Now we have to remember that this is happening when it's dark. This is late at night, uh, and this is an era before photographs, before Instagram, you know, before that celebrity stuff. So many people will have heard the teachings of Jesus. Not that many people probably will have seen him. And if they have, they'd have seen him from a distance. A few will have seen him face to face, but not on a regular basis. And so not many people will know exactly what he looks like. So there's this plan that's concocted. Because you can imagine, if a crowd arrives with armed swords and clubs, and it's late at night, and they suddenly say, okay, which one of you here is Jesus? Now, what's to stop one of the disciples saying, me? A kind of I am Spartacus type thing. Now, you cause enough confusion, and then Jesus can just slip away. And by the time they realize they've arrested the wrong person, it's fine, he's escaped. And so Judas... He's agreed this signal with a crowd. In verse 48, he says, look, the one I kiss, he's the man. Now arrest him. Just ignore what anyone else is going to do. Arrest that man. And so going up once to Jesus, Judas greets him with the, the traditional greeting, greetings, Rabbi, and he kisses him. And the crowd there are awaiting this element of surprise. And as soon as a signal is given, they rush in and they seize Jesus, hoping this moment of disorientation, no one's really going to have time to figure out what's going on, for Jesus to escape. And we've got him and it's sorted. They are in control, so they think. And now, however you translate verse 50, you probably see the alternative translation in your footnotes. But the point is, and we see from the context, Jesus knows what is going on. He is not surprised by this turn of events. I mean, if anything is surprising, it is the fact that Judas and the crowd think that they are in control. That they think that it's all going according to their plan. And so then in verse uh, 51, where you've got one of the disciples who starts you know, wildly swinging around the sword and manages to lop off a servant's ear. And Jesus puts an end to it. He says, put your sword away. Verse 53 do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? See, this isn't an unfortunate and unforeseen outcome. This isn't happening because they're outmanned and they're caught off guard. Okay, there's this crowd, Jesus is saying, that they're armed to the teeth. They're coming to get me. But do you know what? Like, like that, I could call on my father, and in an instant, we could have 12 legions of angels, more than 12 legions of angels. Now, more than enough for Jesus and his 11 disciples. In a Roman army, a legion was 6,000. So you're talking 72,000 angels easily. So you're in that situation, and you've got this mob with swords and clubs. And Jesus is saying, look, I've got at my disposal at least 72,000 angelic warriors we are not in this situation, guys, because we are caught unawares and because they've got more manpower. That is not why any of this is happening, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is a divine purpose. This is a divine plan. This is the divine choice. And at the end of the day, Jesus is not arrested because he is at the mercy of the crowds. Jesus is arrested because of the mercy of God, because of the mercy of God for you. 
This is a divine choice. Do you know how much you are loved? A divine, costly choice. The love of God is marked by this cost, by this choice, and also by clarity. Love's clarity. Third and final thing we're considering this morning. Now, you may well spend a lot of money for something in life that you think is good quality. You might be prepared to spend a little bit of money for something that you know is broken, is ruined, is messed up. Now, with a view of perhaps I can repair it, perhaps I might be able to upcycle it. Now, generally, people do not pay a lot of money for something that they know is broken and damaged and ruined. And when people do that, it's either a sign of madness or of deep affection, isn't it? As we've gone through this passage, we've considered something of what it shows us about God, what it reveals to us about God and about Christ. But what does this passage reveal about us? How are people portrayed in this passage? Now, we could say people are portrayed as rebels and runners. Fighters and fleers. Verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writing of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This armed crowd that has come to Jesus. They've been sent uh, by the religious leaders, by the priests, by the leaders of the people. Those people now, who were supposed to be overseeing the nation of Israel, God's people, instructing them in God's ways, instructing them in the way of holiness. And they have come up with this plan to come and forcibly seize the Messiah. And notice they, they don't do it when he's in the temple courts. He's been there teaching at the point where they would say, well, his teaching is dangerous. They do nothing then. If they were really concerned about his teaching, no, they wait until he's alone, until he's dark, until there's no one around. And that's the moment that they come in. Now, the religious leaders, this mob, this crowd, they're portrayed as these violent cowards. And then what of the disciples? Well, Jesus has taken a close three to himself, uh, Peter, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Now, those disciples who have said to Jesus, we are ready to die with you. Now, we will drink that cup. We're able to sit at your right and your left. Peter said, if everyone else flees away, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to stick beside you. I'm going to die with you. Those three disciples can't even stay awake and pray. Then when the crowd comes and the going gets tough, they get going. I can relate to both groups in my own life. Our passage ended with the verse then, all the disciples deserted him and fled. And that takes us back to what we were looking at last week in verse 31, where Jesus predicted, where he foretold, he said to the disciples, look, you're going to fall away. You're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. The scriptures had already foretold this. 
that the disciples would desert him, that they would leave him. The scriptures had already foretold that Jesus would be rejected by his own. You see, in all this, Jesus knew. God knew. And so in Matthew 1.21, again, going back to that, that key verse at the beginning, that he used to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is a people that God knew. He knew what they were like. He knew his people. He knew what his disciples were like. He knows what I'm like. He knows what you're like. And there is complete clarity in the love of God. The love of God is not blind. It is not as though he has looked at you and and somehow you've pulled the wool over his eyes and convinced him that you are an amazing investment in his kingdom. And you're just waiting for the reality to sink in. And at some point, he's going to see the truth and say, sorry, I was wrong. It's not as though God has seen you on your best day and he's just caught you at that point. And now he's missed out everything else that is happening. God saw your worst day even before you were born. And still he set his love on you. God has not set his love on you because he's impressed by your greatness. Instead, he wants to impress upon you the greatness of his love. A love that sees with complete and absolute clarity. And at your very worst, he saw you. He sees you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And it's at that point that he's committed in the clarity of his eternal knowledge, he is committed to make that divine and costly choice. He knows you. He knows your faults. He knows your failings. He knows your fears. He knows your rebellions. And yet he has set his love on you. And so that means there is no need for us to fear. There's no need to hide. There's no need to try and impress. What's the right response? Ongoing repentance. Do we turn to Christ. We, we reject and we put aside, you know, all those idle non- notions of we know we're loved when. We stop pursuing and chasing those things. We turn to the one who truly does love. And now calls us to love him. To experience that love, to reflect that love, to find rest in that love, to find reformation and redemption. And to know the love of God. A love which is beyond our knowledge. To experience that. Do you know how much you are loved? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatness of your love. Lord, one that is beyond our comprehension. Lord, and we, we recognize, even as scripture tells us, that we need that 
continuing and ongoing revelation that comes from your spirit that we might even be able to grasp the greatness and the immensity of your love. Father, we pray that, that you would do that work within us. Lord, that we would see your great love. Lord, that love that, that meant the heart of Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Lord, that we may be overwhelmed. Lord, with the greatness of your love to life, to that fullness. Lord, in the days and the weeks that come. Lord, impress on us the greatness of your love as we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that we may be filled with all that fullness. Lord, that comes from you. Lord, in order that we may live and loving you and loving as you have called us to love. Lord, and experiencing, Lord, true life through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.